back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast, where Mitch is dancing around like a madman over here. Mitch, I heard you uh, had some doctor's appointment last week, and that's why you missed out on the show. How's everything going, man? Woohoo! I am so excited, DJ. So I'm dancing around in case people didn't see, and those of you who are watching on audio. Wait, watching watch on, on audio? audio. Uh, you missed out on the fantabulous dancing, which would embarrass the hell out of my teenage daughters. <laughs> Uh, thanks for asking about my health. Uh, I had a hernia surgery uh, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago now. Uh, do you want me to show it to you? I mean, uh, I, don't, no. I don't need pictures. It's kind of cool. Kind of cool. Uh, I'm impressed because uh, they sealed the entire thing. So it's right above my belly button, right? And so it's like an inch and a half, two inch uh, incision. And it's just covered in super glue and the glue is still there. So I didn't have to deal with bandages and oozing and all that other icky wicky stuff, which we don't really need to go into a whole lot of detail, but weird. Got a big hunk of glue on my tummy. Um, and of course, you know, part of the problem with that actually, I think is that, uh, you actually feel like since you don't have this big old bandage on, you feel like, Oh, I can do anything. So, the next day I was out with the softball game, was shooting some pictures and laying down on the ground and stuff. And the next day I woke up and I was like, oh, I overdid it. I just had surgery two days ago. I guess I shouldn't have done all that stuff yesterday. <laughs> so I kind of put myself because, I mean, it, you just have this impression. Well, OK, my tummy hurts a little, you know, I mean, I'm sore, but it's not like there's this big gaping wound. Right. Anyway, too much information for many of your viewers. Well, on my end, guys, uh, <laughs> I have not been under the knife, but uh, I have been under the gun finishing up a feature length. I sent out the final review copy to the producer last night, and he sent back a list of things to fix. So I'm going to be working on that oh. all day today. A uh, wonderful time. I love, 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 love editing so, so much. This chair yes. is like my We've been new talking home. about it so much in the last couple of weeks. Oh, my you gosh, man. I really love it. Every day, every day, edit, 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 make a change here, and then audio corrections. Uh, now, I will say, we had some uh, major uh, special effects scenes, and going through and layering the sound bed for those changes the complete view of that. Watching the clips beforehand and then going through and adding sound effects and you know footsteps and things like that really... You know, it's night and day for scenes, and I might even put together yeah. a video on that just because it's it's such a cool process to see things progress from the raw lockdown cut to uh, the complete music, everything finished sort of thing. Uh, I agree, and and that's something that we often don't talk a whole lot about. We as filmmaking slash bloggers, we we tend to ignore the audio side too much, and I, I keep saying that we're going to do more over on Planet's ID about that, but we end up not doing it because it's just not, I don't know. We just don't talk about it too much. Well, man, my timeline right now, and actually uh, it, I can maybe bring this up real quick, but the, um, one of the tracks or one of the, the scenes that we're working on the sequence has 28 tracks of audio. Uh, that's including, you know, footsteps, music, uh, sound effects, gore sounds, you know, water running, okay. uh, rain, uh, there's crickets in the background. And you don't really think about all those little things until you have it in your timeline. And once you do, it's just a massive, horrible beast. 
And I might open that up later on during the show and, and show off like just how much audio goes into the video portion of a film because cool. it's just crazy. I mean, and it's and it's that's one of the things that we often talk about as being fifty percent of the movie, right? Fifty oh, yeah. percent, definitely. And and we ignore it quite a bit. Um, I was watching an old horror or a science fiction movie because apparently. Um, way off topic paramount has released a whole bunch of old movies on youtube oh really and yeah and i was watching i married an alien from outer space or something the other day and, and the sound effects were were okay but anyway it was interesting well i, I was i was paying attention to the old sounds i was able to bring it up real quick and here let me uh share my screen so you guys can see what i'm talking about this is part of the timeline i'm working uh, on right now this is massive. So uh, look at how many audio elements are incorporated into this timeline. This uh, track right up here, this is the uh, video track, just a single two layers. And then all of this down here, and as we scroll through, you can see it's just sound effect after sound effect after musical score after sound effect. And it just turns into a massive amount of work trying to line everything up and you don't think about it. Like you, you record something and for example, the footsteps, we had them running through the grass to attack somebody and they're running through the grass, but you know, you don't capture that on your microphone because your microphone's too far away. So now you're watching every single footstep, inserting the sound of grass for each of those steps all the way through <laughs> until they get to wherever they, they land and then they fall down on the ground. Well, we didn't get a good sound of that because it's just, you know, dirt. So then you have to fully grass and hay hitting the ground. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, but that's that enough. Would, that would be fascinating. See, that's the part I really am fascinated. And, and it's, and it's so vivid that if it's wrong, it's so obvious, right? Oh man. So there's one scene where this girl jumps in the car and tries to start the car and we're listening, you know, we have the car starting sound and everything, but you can't hear the keys jingle. And so you don't notice it when it's there, but if it's not there, it's just this blaringly obvious thing that's missing. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, she's shaking the keys around and there's no jingle at all. So then I have to sit there and diligently watch her jingle the keys, jingle my own keys with a recorder and then sync <laughs> everything up into pieces. And it's, uh, it's tedious. It's very tedious. Are, are you, are you crazy about it? Like me, when we did uh, incident on Marmont Avenue, which is a uh, planet 5D, uh, blog post and anyway I remember that uh, we had a, a scene with a gal doing it calling somebody on a cell phone and and it still drives me crazy because there are eight beeps I counted you know don't, I sit there and I count and, and I'm like we left that in there with eight beeps instead of seven I'm like oh this is just wrong <laughs> anyway move on alright guys I think that's enough complaining about editing time for <laughs> The news. Time, for the news. Time, for the news. Time for the news. I've got a lot to cover this week, but uh, it's kind of all over the place. And first thing I actually wanted to talk about, I'm going to skip around a little bit here, Mitch, is the new Lightroom release. Uh, we are now looking at more raw support. Uh, looks like Adobe has added support for both the Olympus 10 Mark II, the DX1, which is the camera I completely forgot about that goes with your iPhone, the Sony a7S Mark II, and of course they've added support for a number of new Nikon lenses. Now, Mitch, Lightroom, raw support, is this something that uh, you're excited about? woo 
yes, here, here's the sound. That's my daughter. Um, I'm always excited about stuff like raw support because it drives me bonkers that cameras get released and people start buying them and you can't download the dang photos that are shot in raw and do anything with them until people start updating software. So, of course, I'm excited about that. Uh, so if you're interested in that, uh, they've also added uh, DNG conversion support as well as support for Photoshop. So swing over to the link in the show notes and pick that up. That is, is actually something I'm excited about. They added, finally, raw support for the Olympus Air, which is something I've been shooting on and having to shoot JPEG plus raw in order to get my photos out of the freaking <laughs> camera. Hey. Now, I'm excited because this, the, the, the link you gave for Adobe says they still support Microsoft Windows 7. What's uh. that? <laughs> I, was, I, I was at uh, an, uh, an exhibition the other day at the History Museum in St. Louis, and the, the, the front desk clerk left her computer running, and I happened to be standing, long story short, by the side of the window, and I looked over, and it's running Windows 7. I'm like... How old is freaking Windows Seven? And know, here, man. here, Adobe still is supporting Windows Seven. I still have several systems in the house that are running Windows Seven. It's uh, it's a good system. It, it's, it works, right? It works. Yeah, I have. You know, Windows Eight was kind of like didn't really care about it that much, but it, it's probably been what like seven years, six years of Windows Seven. I didn't look it up. Maybe ten. Up. I don't know. Uh, great operating system, uh, still supported for most things. Uh, I, I even know people that are still running XP on a few things. I have a one of my lasers that uh, is currently packed in storage because I don't have enough room for it. Uh, the operating system that's needed to actually cut stuff doesn't support anything but Windows uh, XP. So wow. I have to keep a Windows XP laptop around in order to run the laser anytime I need to cut something. Uh, it's not too bad, but... You run into issues like if you grab a a thumb drive that's too big, you plug it in and it just doesn't support <laughs> it. So, you know, I keep these little like 512 meg thumb drives laying around just for such an occasion. It's a it's a weird July, problem to have. Yeah, July 2009 was Windows 7 release date. Okay, yeah, so six that years. Sense. That makes yeah about right. <laughs> anyway, sorry. All right, moving on down the line here. Actually, this is something I am very excited about and probably the meat and potatoes of this particular show here. Uh, the new DJI Os Osmo? I'm saying Osmo. I'm going to go with Osmo. Uh, this is basically their on-drone uh, camera that DJI released with uh, their latest line. Uh, it, it's on the stick, it's got a battery, and it's got a controller. They've also incorporated some really sexy stuff like audio inputs as well as panoramas. And the price on this, Mitch, $649, so $150 more than a GoPro. It's capable of shooting 4K. It has image stabilization up the yang so you can run around with it just like you would on a quadcopter and get good three-axis stabilization. What do you think, man? Is this going to be a revolution for uh, filmmakers on a budget? I am pretty impressed by this, um, especially with the price point of six forty nine. Is that what you said? Yeah, six forty nine. Uh, your your live view is covering up my pricing. Yeah, six forty nine. We have to realize though that this isn't brand new. I mean, I guess I mean we have had small gimbals around for a couple of years, right? 
um, I put in the show notes, by the way, a link to Shape, for example, that has a two-axis GoPro gimbal that I saw at um, NAB two years ago. So they've been around, although this is three-axis. And this has its own embedded camera, right? As opposed to having to slap on a GoPro. So you don't have to buy something extra, which is a plus. Uh, and there's also, I also added a show note link to the, um, uh, sorry, I have to scroll down and see. I, what's the other one it's called? Uh, the the Aeon. Yeah, which we posted the other day, which has been successfully funded over on Indiegogo. Uh, but you don't get a camera with that one. So this one, this one makes it integrated and all in one piece, which is a phenomenal little bit. Now, I did find it interesting that in the video that they have, they show a bunch of uh, attractive young ladies on a boat with doing selfies with this thing. I'm like, I don't know if I'd go that far that a bunch of people are going to buy this to do selfie video kind of stuff. But as an action camera, uh, the ability to shoot 4K handheld pretty seamless, pretty motionless. Uh, this, this, this is impressive. I think the reason that I'm actually excited about this guy is, is because for the price, you're getting everything. Now, in right. the past, you bought a gimbal system, and then you put a camera on there. If it was a GoPro unit, usually they were fairly well balanced. You just shove your GoPro on there and go. But if it was any other kind of unit that was able to accept the larger cameras, you're going to have to do balancing. You're going to have to do everything else. Hopefully, you don't have to tweak the software in order to get this going. Well, with the Osmo, basically, you have a little ball camera, so balancing isn't an issue. They can basically have much more fine-tuned controls over the stabilization because the camera is so small and you're getting the camera included so yeah. uh, uh you know a, a hero 4 black edition that'll set you back what about 4.99 so yeah. and that shoots 4k video now you have that incorporated into this so now you have an entirely seamless unit that you don't have to change batteries out on your camera and on the gimbal itself and it's only 150 dollars more than the higher end action camera I mean, you're not going to take this out in the water like, like you said on a boat. I, I would be a little bit iffy as to taking my $649 non-waterproof unit out into extreme circumstances like that. But I mean, wandering through a field, uh, following someone into a house, any kind of moving shot, this is way cheaper than it's ever been for someone to get a stabilized shot uh, moving around and motion in a film is awesome. I mean, right. running around your characters, being able to move in and out like that. Uh, now, the lens on this is pretty wide. I believe this is a 20 millimeter, uh, 35 millimeter equivalent. So you're not going to get anything tight, but to follow a character around and add some motion to your film for 649, I mean, I would almost consider selling a GoPro just to buy this thing. That would that would be a pretty good bargain for me. Uh, I don't know, Mitch, what about you? Would you follow your kids around with this? I Lensing is an issue, and I guess we haven't really talked about the other 50%, right? Uh, it does mention that there is uh, audio recording. They don't mention a microphone, though. Is, did you see anything about a mic? Yes, there's a built-in microphone on the unit itself, as well as a 3.5-millimeter audio jack with volume control. So... You can, if you would like, run external audio into this guy using something like maybe 
this beach tech adapter here or a juice link adapter in order to get good quality audio into that or you could sync i suppose and post if you wanted to uh that's another thing you don't really get with a gopro i mean you can get the case that's uh, cut open in order to use the USB to 3.5 millimeter adapter, but there aren't a lot in the way of controls for audio on the GoPro itself. Plus, you know, that's going to unbalance your rig, whereas this is incorporated right. into the handle itself. So the controls right. also look fairly sexy. I mean, uh, I don't know. I like that. Did you see the accessory where it's got the rosebud and you hook your phone yeah. into it? Now, that that part I'm kind of leery on. Uh, do you think they're going to have real-time or close enough to real-time preview on a wireless device like that in order to actually follow things around? Uh, obviously, we have to see. I'm impressed that it's it's uh, going to be available shortly. Uh, by the way, the other one, like the Aon that I mentioned, is still on Indiegogo. It's been funded, but obviously that's not going to happen until next year sometime. Uh, so, I mean, I, w- I was very excited about the Aon uh, because it looks pretty <coughs> dead gum cool. And here, as uh, DJI comes along, and I think, I mean, I, I feel sorry for those guys because they got a, a fabulous Kickstarter project going. I'm sorry, Indiegogo project going. And along comes something that I think is potentially better than their device because you, the Aon, you still have to have your own GoPro and, and you know, that's extra cost. And this is all in one kit. Not to mention, like you said, like the, the, the accessories as well as the thumb control to be able to uh, move the camera up and down and move it all around and that kind of stuff. I like that a lot. Yeah, some of the uh, things they were advertising, like the instant panorama, I mean, that's kind of cool. Right. But are you going to carry a stick like this around in order to get the perfect panorama? (laughs) Well, it it comes down to uh, something that we're going to talk about also later, the uh, the 16 lens deal. You, You know, you like your cell phone because you've got the ability to just have it in your pocket. Uh, That's the awesome capability. Something like this is an extra thing that you've got to carry around and it's not exactly going to fit in your pocket very well. Uh, So it depends upon your purpose. If you're going to be making films or stills, panoramas and that kind of stuff, if you're going to already be carrying a camera, this, this looks perfect. Um, I was trying to figure out how I could use this at, at something like NAB next year to do videos uh, and just get them uploaded quickly. Because last year, what I was doing was using my iPhone, which was much more convenient than carrying around a DSLR or a video camera and having to then edit in post and all that other crap. Uh, so because this has Wi-Fi in it, and uh, although it says... It, at least on the the VNH page, that it's the Wi-Fi is for monitoring and remote operations. So I don't know if you can like transfer your video to your iPhone. Yeah, I think you still have to remove the micro SD card if you need to get your video out of this guy. Uh, the Wi-Fi features are strictly for control and preview. Um, the reason I was wondering about the preview version is simply because there's no HDMI out on this that I see. 
And so if you're using your cell phone or a tablet or whatever attached to the side of this as your preview device in order to film something, uh, generally if you're used to using Wi-Fi tethering with like a GoPro or I've got the Panasonic LX100 here, there's a lag of, you know, a couple seconds sometimes. Uh, Sometimes it's as low as milliseconds, but that really throws you off when you're trying to compose and frame a shot. And if you're doing motion shots, that's extra critical because you have to really pay attention to where you're going and where you're moving in order, you know, maybe someone's filming something else from a different angle and you don't want to get them in the shot or what have you. And if you're seeing it delayed, uh, that could be sort of a problem for you. Now you can just run around, you know, if you're doing action stuff, extreme sports or something like that, I guess it doesn't really matter because you just want to get everything that's going on. But if you're using it to tell a story, then it, it might be a little bit of a hindrance. Still, 649 for a stabilized shot, I mean, that's phenomenally priced. Rigs in the yeah. past or paying someone to come out. I think last time I had an operator come out with a vest, it was like 800 or or $1,000 a day. Uh, wow. So, you know, it can get very expensive very fast, and you can buy this unit. It, it, it's not going to be as good as a human being who operates stuff like this all the time, but right. it's going to get you probably... I don't know, looking at the shots, if they're to be believed, I would say 85 to 90% of the way there. Yeah. I especially really like the, like you said, the uh, the ability to put the uh, iPhone smartphone as a monitor because that's the one thing that's always missing for me is I, I feel something crazy about me, but I feel like I have to see what I'm shooting, right? And just... Just holding something without a monitor on it drives me crazy, which is why I never liked the GoPro in the first place. I like to see what the heck I'm getting. Now, the other thing that's really actually interesting about this guy is that you can actually control the pan and tilt remotely. So it does have the ability to be clipped on, mounted, or attached to a bracket, also using this uh, rosebud connector right here. And with that, you could actually put this into a corner of a room or something like that and do smooth pans using the gimbal action. So if you combine that with a motorized slider, now you have a complete programmable pan and tilt system that you can operate via your phone, which is also pretty sexy. And if they open up the API, I mean, imagine what kind of fun things you could do with that for time-lapse and so on. Yep. Yeah, now, didn't I also see that you could put a... a a small micro four thirds camera on here instead. Uh, they are talking about the X five and the other X series uh, camera bodies being capable of attaching to the pistol grip here. I, yeah. I haven't seen that those actually for sale or for pre order yet. But if that's the case, that would basically give you something like the Z one that I pre ordered uh, attached and ready to go for this. Now you are limited if you do go that route because. Uh, the bigger the lens, the less likely the stabilization system is going to work. So right. for the X5, I believe DJI is offering the 20 millimeter equivalent and I think a, a 35 millimeter equivalent lens. So the 17 and the like 12 or something. Uh, but both of those are very, very petite lenses. So you don't have all the lensing options. Sure. Yeah, but that, but that at least gives you some alternatives, which is stays all in one kit, right? I mean, you obviously have to have a separate body, 
but the ability to not have to then go buy something different. Now, obviously, there may be some balancing issues there that you don't have with the DJI lens kit, but uh, very sexy little device. So there's links to everything Mitch and I have been talking about in the show notes here. Uh, this is a fairly in-depth uh, read if you want to find out a lot more about DJI's new Osmo offering. Uh, I really like the look of this guy. I'm probably going to pre-order it just you know, because well, yeah. it's coming out in October, and uh, I want something like this in my uh, tool collection. Now, moving on down the line to something else that's going to sort of blow your mind. And actually, Mitch and I were sort of banting back and forth about this, trying to figure out how it actually works. We've got here this 16 lens camera. Now, just like the DJI, this has kind of been in the works for a little while. People have sort of been talking about it, but this is the first time we've kind of seen images from the camera itself and seen it out in the wild. They've been uh, taking it around and doing sort of promotional stuff with it. Mitch, what do you know about this crazy 16 sensor camera? I'm pretty excited about this just because it's different. I guess that, you know, I love, I love things that are stepping outside of the box. And if you read the planet 5d article, um, I, I mentioned <laughs> no plug there at all. Uh, I mentioned the fact that I asked Chuck Westfall back in 2012 at NAB when Canon was going to start putting something like an iOS operating system in a camera. And you and I have discussed this time and time again, but this is the kind of thing that I was envisioning when I asked Chuck that question, not, and of course, I was thinking about a DSLR as well, but the ability, this is, this camera is, it's at 16 lenses on it, which, and if, and if I, I attached a photo from, I got too many things to say at one time. All right. So <laughs> in the show notes, there's a link to the video uh, that uh, yesterday or yeah, yesterday, all of a sudden I'm drawing a complete blank. What the hell's his name? All right, so if you go to Facebook link that we've got in the show notes, you can see a video where he actually has um, a broken apart version of this 16 sensor camera, and you can see the sensor layout and everything else in there. Now, before we dive into what we think about the camera, let's talk about the tech for a second. What they're doing here, and I actually had to double check this three or four times because there's five sensors for certain focal lengths, but then there's six for another focal length. If I understand it correctly... They're doing 16 sensors total, five sensors at 35 millimeters, five sensors at 70 millimeters, and six sensors at 150 millimeters. These are all splashed onto the back of something roughly the size of a very large uh, Samsung Galaxy S. So right. that thing is, is that big. And in order to accommodate all those sensors, what they're doing is they're using a mirror at a 45 degree angle and they're bringing the light that's coming in and reflecting it off to the side just like you would for a viewfinder on a DSLR and sending that to the sensor itself. Now each of those in turn has its lens elements and so on and then a sensor at the back of the chamber and with all of those capturing simultaneously they're able to capture five different focus points at each of those focal lengths, except for 150, which is six focal points. And then in post, you're combining all those images together in order to sort of selectively choose 
your depth of field, your uh, focal points, and the amount of light coming in. Now, with that many sensors multiplied well, over the top of each other. Let's, let's time out here. Oh, what I mess I mean, up? You're talking about, well, I, I think what I hear you saying, because you're saying selecting focal points in post, I don't, I mean, that's like the Lytro, right? Where you're, you have gotten multiple virtual images and you can select what's in focus. From the interview that Robert Scoble did, I don't believe that's true. I believe you're capturing one image with the focal point at the time you shot the image. So I don't think you're getting post-processing focal point selection. So you can't work across different focal points with all I those? I don't believe so. Okay. I believe it's very much like a regular DSLR or smartphone. You take the picture based on what's in focus at the time you shoot it. One of their demo videos, and again, I just spent probably four hours researching this last night, so I may have missed something. Uh, it looked like they were demoing software that went along with the the image file that they were, you know, sort of selectively moving a dial on the side and changing the amount of bokeh in a couple of the shots. Okay, I didn't see that. So maybe. That's true. maybe it, I wouldn't want to compare this to Elytra because Elytra is doing something com like completely different than this. And, you know, you're not you're not working with f-stops on lenses or anything like right. that. It's it's a whole different process. But with this many sensors and they're all capturing simultaneously, there's got to be more to it than just, you know, one solid image. Otherwise, you know, what would be the point of slamming so many sensors out of the, the back of this guy? Um, to make it a small, compact, multifunction tool. Um, and, and maybe that's true, because what I heard them talking about on the interview was the fact that, I mean, Lytro, for example, in order to allow the, the focus point selection, they have to have their own, like, web player, right? You cannot just post a still image and have the user adjust exactly you have to use a script of some kind with the image and, in order to do it and so but and, and that limits the functionality of being able to post it on Flickr and facebook and all the other social media right because then you're you're limited by that so they were talking specifically about not having those kind of limitations when posting so maybe there is some functionality that you saw that i didn't see uh in processing it on the computer once you get to download it uh i don't know you might be right uh i did find it fascinating that they claim an f 1.0 depth or uh, uh equivalent uh, depth of field of an f 1.0 lens right and I, that's where i started thinking about this and i'm trying to piece this all together in my mind and my thought on how they're doing this is that if they have five sensors uh, what you could basically do is you could uh, close focus one of the sensors, long focus the other sensor, and then focus a couple of the sensors on your subject itself. And that would give you better low light performance, A. B, it would give you the option to include or disclude beautiful bokeh at whatever focal length you chose because now you can basically bring your sensor to the closest focal point. That means everything's out of focus, the maximum amount of focus it can be behind your subject. And by combining those layers on top of each other, uh, that gives you a lot of wiggle room to sort of right. cheat your uh, focal equivalent. 
the only thing I'm wondering, well, not the only thing, I'm wondering a lot of things actually, but <laughs> the, one of the things I'm wondering is they mentioned four, or, uh, video shooting, 4K video shooting in, in some of their posts, and they've got to do some sort of processing to stream all these together, or they're just using a couple of the sensors to create your 4K image. So if they're doing video with this, either you have to have a massive CPU in here handling all of the processing and bringing that into a 4K clip, or you're cutting down the number of sensors you're actually using in order to accommodate that, or there's some sort of uh, extra chip besides the CPU that's like pre-processing this in some way that's, I don't know, mathematical in order to accomplish video out of this thing. I'm not really sure how how that would be done without maybe some yeah. additive formats or something like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's a, like you said, there's a lot of questions about this. They did specifically mention in that Robert Scoble interview that at times they're using up to 10 of the sensors at one time. And I find it interesting, because, and, it, and it's confusing, by the way, uh, because... They, they talk about them as cameras. They don't say sensors and they don't say lenses. They talk about ten, using 10 cameras. And so they're almost like independent, but you know, inside the software, they're dealing with them as... I mean, I mean if you think about it, if you look at the, at the sample, you've got a lens and you've got a sensor, right? So basically that becomes a quote-unquote camera. So maybe that's the right term because I I've seen a couple of people on Facebook talk about well they claim that it's a, a full frame effective depth of field but it's not a quote unquote uh, 36 millimeter sensor you know you, the wording gets really confusing the way they're talking about this stuff. Well, now looking at the sensor array here, you guys can see this on the screen for the video viewers, audio viewers, I suggest you visit the show notes. Um, these are all lined up in, in fixed positions. If you have your sensors in fixed position, that means that you know exactly where the image is coming from in respect to the rest of the sensors of like focal length. So right. you could do some uh, photo trickery with five different sensors capturing the same focal length simultaneously in order to stream those and combine them together. Uh, if it's only using a certain group of focal lengths at a time, then that would mean to me that you would select, okay, I want a 35-millimeter shot, or I want a 50-millimeter shot, or I want a 150-millimeter shot, and then you would take the shot and it would only group those together. Where it gets confusing is if they're grouping all 16 elements together simultaneously what is that doing to your image exactly? And, and how would they even put that together properly right. because they're, they're cropped in and out. So well, I would again, guess five, it, five at a time, six at a time. In, in the Robert Scoble interview, he, the CEO specifically mentions that the zoom function, because it's a, it's a very fluid zoom. It's not that you just get a 35 millimeter, a 70 millimeter, and a 150 millimeter option in terms of your uh, your images, right? You yeah. get a fluid, if that's the right word, uh, dynamic zoom from 35 all the way up to 150. And he says specifically in there that they can use up to 10 sensors at a time to effectively create that zoom range. Hmm. So 
again, they may be down to five. You know, if you happen to be exactly at 70 millimeters and you, you would be obviously pulling from those five quote unquote cameras that are at 70 millimeter effective, whatever, uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to see how they're doing it. They're obviously, I don't know that I mentioned they're using Android to deal with this. Okay. And they specifically talk in the interview about being able to have like the Facebook app, for example, or the, the Flickr app to be able to just upload photos right from the camera. Now it doesn't have cell service. So if you are in an area where Wi-Fi isn't working, you would have to use they, they even have it set up, quote unquote, to pair with a phone so that you could use the cell service and upload your images directly if you don't happen to have Wi-Fi available, which is kind of cool. So, I thought a lot about this. In the video, I only saw a few screenshots where they're fidgeting around with the screen and uh, sort of demonstrating the zoom feature that you're talking about. Do you know if there's any kind of post-processing in the device itself to handle these images as they come out? Or are they raw? I mean, that would be kind of interesting. They are. They do have raw capability, yes. Um, and since there is an Android operating system there, you could do an Instagram with it. I mean, you could do all sorts of filtering and processing. Um, I mean, that was the fact, the thing that was very interesting is that is extensible because they're using Android. You could do all sorts of stuff with the output of these things. Uh, and they're talking about, I mean, the fact that the other part of that, by the way, is that the stills that come out of here are 52 megapixels, right? Yeah, that's a pretty substantial sized images. So, uh, so how they're doing that obviously is all in the software by combining, I mean, it's, I don't know it, how much you care about astronomy, but you know, we planet 5D people, since we're from another universe, we, we obviously <laughs> think about astronomy a lot. <clears throat> but many of the new really large telescopes are not one big massive lens or mirror. They're, They're an array. doing arrays, yeah, small mirrors, which are easier to create and manage and manipulating the image by combining all of that data in software at the end. And that's what they're doing here, right? They're just a whole bunch of little tiny sensors effectively creating a large sensor. Now, uh, on top of being a big megapixel camera, this is going to have a very substantial price. We're looking at a pre-order price of $1,300 roughly if you get in now and uh, when they release sometime at the end of 2016. We're talking a price of about $1,600. So keep that in summer mind. Six, this is Summer of 16, not end, but yeah. Oh, yes. Well... I'm I'm kind of getting burned on a lot of these. Like our stuff is coming in the future at some point. Uh, yeah. The the kickstarters and this whole generation of products where they sell you before the product actually comes out, and you may or may not see your product for however long. I kind of go with the more conservative. I'd say the end right. of 2016. Right. But this is the price of a DSLR basically. So yeah. you know it is a substantial investment and. No idea. I mean, I have a lot of ideas, but I am not 100% sure how everything in this works. And I would like to keep an eye on this. And as more news and specs and technical information comes out, I will be keeping track of that. And maybe we can revisit this once we kind of know how the inside is doing yep. its magic. Uh, 4K yep. video, though, that's one I want to know a little bit more about. 
Now, well, and, and, and if I may, you know, the, the fact that they're coming out with this really indicates that with software, going back to my comments, my question to Canon, that they are so limited in their software that comes with the DSLR to have the ability to do this kind of stuff is just going to blow up the world. And if, in, a, in my opinion, if, if camera makers don't somehow go down that path, they're going to be really stuck because if I have the opportunity to buy a camera that allows me to upload directly to Facebook and do filters and all that crazy, wacky, silly, goofy stuff in the camera, as opposed to waiting until I get home, I mean, that's, that's, to me, the future. Well, being able to edit and also having a camera that's light and compact. I mean, right yeah. now, you know, I would say probably 40% of the shooting I've been doing in the last month or so has been on this guy. And the reason is it's tidy. The LX100, right. it's small. I can throw it in my bag. It's not that big a deal. It doesn't take up a lot of space. My shoulder isn't sore at the end of the day because I've been carrying around four pounds worth of lens and camera body. Uh, sure, it's uh, it's compromised. You know, it's not as good as my 6D or my 5D Mark III when I'm right. shooting in low light or something like that. But how often do you need that much performance out of, you know, family photos or, you know, right. running around with friends or whatever? Right. This camera is much better for that sort of thing. And, you know, being able to shoot 4K, I can go shoot some video if I need to and use it as a professional tool as well as a fun sort of handoff to the wife type of thing. Now, uh -huh. this camera here, the 16 sensors, uh, it's skinny. It's the size of your pocket. You can put it in your pocket. Exactly. Now you have a 50 megapixel camera that can fit in your pocket. And if it can even partially replace the quality that you would get out of a DSLR or out of a mirrorless camera or anything else, now you're talking a proposition of comfort for travel. And yeah. what's the end result here? You know, we want skinnier laptops. We want smaller stuff. We don't want to carry as much junk around with us, and we uh -huh. want it to do as much as possible, uh, i.e. Right. the cell phone. So if I can carry a good camera that takes up as little space as possible and does as much as possible, has the most functionality – that's the product I'm going to go with, even if there's a few compromises, simply because yeah. it saves my back. And my back is getting older, and it gets very <laughs> sore after yeah. carrying a camera bag around all day. Well, I'll give, I'll give you another example. Uh, this past weekend, my daughter went to the high, the high school homecoming dance thing, right? So they asked me to come over and take a bunch of pictures of the guys and the gals in the backyard of one of the friends. So they, you know, there's like 12 couples, right? Uh, I took my 5D Mark III with the 70 to 200, got some awesome pictures. And I brought them home. I downloaded them. I did some editing that night. I didn't really finish it up till Sunday the next day. The parents that were there with their iPhones got their photos online. And those proliferated on Facebook like crazy because they were there first. Right. And the yep. first in this situation, one, I uploaded some photos and everybody went, oh, well, we've already seen that. I mean, mine were better, right? They had depth of field and they were great bokeh in the background and stuff, but they just weren't received as well because they were, everybody had already seen the same photos from the other parents. Yeah. Now, being first is a big deal. And it having, is, you know, in some cases, having Wi Fi in something like this or the GH4. 
it is very nice when you're done, you know, hanging out for the afternoon and you're having dinner with your friends to just like right. quickly turn your phone on, grab all the photos that you took off of your nice camera and then post them right away yeah. so that everything's done and you don't have to do any of the processing. And honestly, exactly. Mitch, you've done photo processing. Doing that when you're not getting paid for it is painful because you have to go sort through all your photos. You know, a lot of times uh-huh. we fall into the photography trap of, you know, burst mode. And so we've right. shot like 20 or 30 photos that we probably don't need. We only need like three of them. So we search through those, do all the editing, do all the post-production on them, then render them out, then upload them. And it's, you're just like, you dread doing it. It's one of those things yeah. where you're just kind of like, ah, I don't want to process these photos. I'll just put them on the server and forget about them. And, you know, hopefully right. no one ever asks for them right. again, you know. The the only difference between, well, I won't say the only difference, but the one of the biggest differences for me was the fact that some of the kids had pimples, right? And I was able to do some editing to eliminate that, which the parents obviously didn't get to do on their smartphone. So, you know, there is some beautification that you can do in post-processing that, that is currently not available on a smartphone. Now, if you could push the smartphone and have them do all the skin cleanup stuff, then, and that's probably coming soon. I mean, you can do some minor tweaks, but it's not the same, right? Uh, anyway, you just know. crank up the whites and make the face look a little washed out, and bam, all your imperfections <laughs> are gone. Um, moving on down the line here, uh, right. we've got a few more things to touch on. I wanted to point out that the Panasonic G7 series received an award from DP Review. And it's a kind of an interesting reward as the best consumer stills slash video camera. Uh, I didn't even know that was an option. And I started looking at the specs and the price for the G7. And I know we've talked about the camera in the past, but, uh, you know, looking through the line uh, line items on this camera, it's basically a GH4 with a few things missing and it's still interchangeable lens and, you know, 4K video, all the things that you want. And it's half the price, $659 for this guy. Same price as that stabilizer we were just talking about. <laughs> uh, man, what is this doing to uh, videographers now? This sort of price to get in, get started, you could actually buy this camera, get two or three lenses, actually get three or four lenses, get some audio gear and have a complete setup for under $2,000, a really nice 4K-capable setup. Uh, Mitch, what do you think that does to the video market? It's the same argument we've had before. Uh, There are obviously going to be people who come in and underprice, cut, and it it turns out that skill is still important. You remember that? Skill Uh, is a thing. I found an article this morning and I'm not going to be able to pull it up really fast because I, it's just too far, but it, it the art, the article came in my email was about the fact that the experts in broadcast, and we're going to jump over to another field for a second, but the experts in broadcast used to quantify everything in terms of broadcast quality based on the technical specs of, what was being sent out to the consumer, right? How well the video audio turned out when the consumer got it. And it's now flipped. They're now saying that the consumer is defining what broadcast quality is. And I love this article. I mean, I'm, I'm going to post about this because I've, you and I've said this before. 
we can pixel peep all freaking day and it doesn't matter because the people that are watching our videos are watching them on that little tiny five inch smart ass smartphone <laughs> right and so the users the consumers are defining based on this article and i really believe this is true they're defining that they want content that's of high quality and they don't have to worry these days about whether it's maybe slightly pixelated or slightly grainy or or whatever they're after content of high quality so whether or not you do it on a, a Alexa, a Mira, or whether you do it on a $600 cell phone, all they care about is what the hell the content is. Well, where I'm excited about the G7 in general is is it's sort of a liberating thing for film students. And sure. when I was in college, if you were in the film department... Uh, you had to save up like three or four grand to shoot a, you know, a five minute short. And that was basically yep. your film stock, you know, the rental of your camera, the lights, and then whoever you could rope into acting for you. Now you can get a complete setup, you know, audio gear, camera, everything, you know, a $2,000 investment. That's not bad. And micro four thirds, you know, it's a pretty reasonable format to shoot on 4k video. That's really awesome that you're capable of doing that. And now Instead of just hoping that someday you can save up enough to shoot your first film, you can go out and shoot it, and anybody can go get software. They can start editing. Uh, it does hurt some yeah. of the distribution models that are available, but you're right, Mitch. You know, you have sure. people that are winning at this as well with the like vines, vine videos right now. There are these little short vignettes that tell like a joke or something like that, and there's people that are making a living just cranking right. out these little comedy bits. And and they're short. They're shot vertical video style. They're not, you know, the quality of these are not amazing. It's cell phones and so on. But because it's able to retain an audience, a big audience, in fact, for a lot of these, it's it's turning into a very popular thing. And now with tools like this, if you want to be a filmmaker, you should just, you know, go out, max out one credit card and you have everything you need to be a filmmaker. Go make your films. Hopefully you find your market and someone will give you some money for the stuff that you're making. But man, is it affordable to be a filmmaker these days? Like you can really let's, walk in and get an awesome setup. Let's let's caveat that the DJ said to max out your credit cards, not me. Uh, so if you're going to go max out your credit cards and then go sue somebody, Go sue DJ. Yeah, don't max out your credit card, guys. That's actually a really bad investment. Bad um, idea. A, a few uh, things, though. I did actually send a kid out. Uh, I didn't send him out. I suggested to him. He wanted to become a filmmaker, and he didn't have enough money to buy his camera gear. Uh, they had these medical tests that they do at these universities, and they pay. Like, you go in there for a week, and they give you, like, $4,000. Yeah. It's it's not a huge substantial amount of money, but it's enough that he was able to do one of those, pay his taxes, and then get all the camera gear he needed as well as an editing computer to start making films. And he just put out a short recently. He's uh, working on a feature length now. Uh, his quality is still getting up there, and I'm not going to call him out directly because he's a nice kid. But 
Yeah. There are tons of options. You know, you could go donate plasma if you need to, to pay for memory cards and lenses and stuff. You know, yep. there's tons of ways to finance your film now. And, you know, Mitch has kids. Maybe his kids will just say, hey, dad, give me your credit card real quick. I need to order something. And then, bam, now they're a filmmaker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and the, this, the, the appeal of that is not only can you get a camera like this Panasonic G7, but you could actually get two of them if you wanted to because they're they're cheap. Or uh, you can have one of your friends use their cell phone and use you know the iPhone video that comes out, especially if you get the 4K version that's out now. And you can have some decent extra shots that you could throw in every now and then. So it doesn't just have to limit yourself to one camera. Now, I know that's not in the show notes, but let's talk about that for a second. The iPhone 6S release, uh, that camera, first thing, what did we see? We saw all these 4K videos uh, basically being posted, like, here's the first short film made with an iPhone. Here's yeah. the first whatever made with an iPhone. And and then you see the behind the scenes and what do they have? They have an iPhone, of course, but now they have like three lenses that they're changing out and strapping to the front of the sensor. And they've got these adapters uh -huh. and they're, you know, they're turning this little tiny cell phone into a massive device. And then they're showing you these beautiful shots of, you know, there's one where it's a guy painting an entire village on the side of a cliff and they're using gorgeous lenses on top of this phone, and then they're like, yeah, anybody could get this kind of quality. Well, you could if you strap an extra, like, three grand or four grand to your iPhone. Yeah. What do you think about that, Mitch? Is that kind of, like, false advertisement for those sorts of things? Uh, yeah, well, obviously, yes. <laughs> um, you have to be really careful with everything you see, and, it's, and that's one of the reasons why we love to post the behind-the-scenes along with videos when we have them. And we certainly ask for them as well when we're talking to filmmakers because you're, you're hitting the nail on the head that that's the key. It's not only just what they're doing, but how they're doing it. And, you know, what lighting are they using? Are they shooting at the right time of day instead of bright sunlight and, and using scrims? I mean, you've, you've seen people using scrims for their actors and actresses to, dead in the bright sun and, and so all of those tricks are used of course now moving on down the line one last thing I, I wanted to talk about before we get out of here one. Mitch and, okay. uh, that is uh, the Canon C300 Mark II now this is not a camera I'm excited about at all I haven't been excited about it wasn't excited about the C100 or C300 original but I have it in the show notes here <laughs> and this $16,000 camera, the biggest thing that they've been touting lately is the AF system. And I will admit, did you watch the videos on this, Mitch? It's very impressive. That dual pixel AF is tracking faces almost perfectly as they move around. I did. It's fascinating. And it's a great story that's over on um, uh, newshooter.com. Newshooter and did you did you go all the way to the bottom, by the way? The, the bottom part of that article was, was kind of interesting because the young lady that you just showed who was doing some of the uh, testing for them actually says at the bottom that although the AF is really good, there were certain instances where it, it was more of a hindrance than a help. Um, and so it depends upon your scenario, of course. With, with anything, there's always the, it depends, right? 
if you're a single shooter and you don't have a steady cam operator and somebody that can pull focus for you uh, and you want to do a tracking shot following somebody having af inside the camera focusing on somebody's face that works as well as the canon solution does is fantastic i would still love to have the um p 6i or the 70d that has the uh, uh the great af on it. i think it's 70d i get some there's so many damn cameras right now it's so hard to remember who has what features it's ridiculous dj there's so many freaking numbers um, yeah, but I mean, look at this Panasonic G7 that we just talked about that, that won the award for Consumer Still Flash Video Camera of the Year. Um, we, we've talked about it once, but it's not one of the major players, and yet here it is trumping, at least in DP Reviews viewpoint, many of the other cameras that have been out for a while. Anyway, that being said, it, I would love to have... Uh, Canon's autofocus because of the times that I shoot stuff and I move slightly and then it's out of focus and I'm pissed off because my face is out of focus and I have to reshoot something or I just push through it because the consumers only care about what the content is, right? Not whether I'm in focus. Anyway, I, I think it's, it's a good system. It will only get better in the long run and for many users, it works great. Is it is it perfect for DJ who's going to be doing a slasher film? I don't know. And the other thing, and you questioned, by the way, uh, in the show notes, is is the C300 worth the $15,000? $15,000? For many people, it is. Uh, it just depends. And it goes back to uh, the quality of the camera, the fact that Canon... And, and this is going to sound like a promotion, and I'm, and I'm not paid by Canon in any way, shape, or form. I wish I was. I wish I was a shill for Canon, because I'd be a lot better off than I am now. But anyway, <laughs> it, it, Canon is still leading the market. They still sell more cameras than anybody else. Uh, as much as people like you, who have different options... <laughs> are choosing different cameras, there are still people who are very loyal to Canon who really believe in the Canon build quality, and that's what they're going to pick. They're going to pick Canon over other cameras just because of that loyalty. As many jabs Even as I take at Canon, I still own an entire kit of Canon gear. <laughs> you know, I own most of their L-series lenses all the way up to the uh, se- uh, yeah, the the big, dang it! Now my brain's not working. The seventy-five to two hundred, <laughs> or the seventy to two hundred millimeter f two eight is. So I have got yeah. everything all the way up to there in their L series lenses, and I I do use it. I use my five D Mark three and my sixty on a regular basis. Love both of those cameras. They take great images, but. Where I always jab Canon, and I did this in the show notes, and that's what Mitch was pointing out. It's like, listen, okay, this is a $1,600 camera, and you got to compare it to its competition. And this that was the issue that we ran into with the C100 and some of these other ones. There's so many good cameras coming out that yeah. the price ends up sort of hindering the value pro- proposition that you're getting out of this. Now, if you're buying a camera in this range, chances are... You're going to be renting it out. You're going to be trying to make some money with it. It's not something that you just buy to go shoot your first, you know, uh, amateur short film or whatever. 
this is an investment and it needs to bring back money on the investment. And we have cameras like the Sony FS7 and the FS5 or F7 and FS5 that are in the $8,000 and $5,000 range. And those cameras have similar specs, very good low light performance, and a lot of the same features that are available in something like the C300. And now if you are charging an hourly rate to go out and film something, you know, say your day rate is seven or $600 a day, you can incorporate in this and get your money back out of it in your rental agreements and make a little bit more money than you can with yeah. Canon. And uh, th- I think that's what it comes down to for me is dollar versus value. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you one question, something that you have mentioned several times, and that's the image quality. Uh, you have said that sometimes you pick the Canon because you don't have to do any post-processing, right? And, and it was even mentioned in one of the comments over on New Shooter, said, well, yeah, I could buy the F7 or FS700 or some other camera, and I can get the same look in post-processing that I can with the Canon. And you have to realize, and, and initial upfront cost is one thing, but if you can shoot for $16,000 and go straight out of the camera virtually and edit and upload without having to do a whole lot of coloring and fixing in post versus trying to tweak everything, there's time invested in doing the post-processing. So there could be a financial gain by just using the Canon if that's the look and feel you want. And there's that's the caveat. It has to be the way you want it to look. If you're going to go color it and do all the post-processing anyway, then you should go with the cheaper camera that works. Color science is true. Mitch is absolutely right. There are times when you choose the camera based on the image that comes out of it, not on the specs yeah. list. So, uh, Gosh, I did something right. Yay, me! <laughs> These are age-old arguments that we will continue to have on <laughs> DSLR Film New Podcast, and it's always fun working with Mitch and discussing a lot of this stuff. Now, you have anything else you want to cover? I know I left a few things out in the show notes, but uh, you know the yeah. EOS M just isn't really that interesting of a camera per se. And uh, that was the only, actually I think that is the only thing I left out of the show notes. So, on that note, Mitch, where can people find you? Hey, I'm at a website called Planet 5D. And of course, guys, you can find me at DSLR Film Noob on Twitter. You can find this podcast anywhere podcasts are distributed, including iTunes. There's always links to the show notes, and Mitch is always kind enough to do up the times. So if you want to jump to any particular thing in this video, be sure to click on that for the audio listeners. Show notes are always available. Uh, Check your description and click on that, and you can get the entire list of things that we talk about. Now, guys, go out. And hit the like button if you can, and write a review on iTunes, because that helps the show immensely. Mitch and I, we do this free gratis, so your contributions there help us quite a bit. On that note, we will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSR Film Noob. Film Noob.